Well, welcome to our third week in our study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, last week we looked at the fascinating study of the actual appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. That he actually made appearances uh, from time to time in the Old Testament. Uh, not by name as we know him in the New Testament and not in the same form as we see him in the New Testament, but indeed still making uh, actual appearances to people in the Old Testament days. Do you remember what that was called, by the way? Can somebody tell me what that's called? Christophany. Uh, we talked about a theophany as the appearance of God, and there's places in the Old Testament where God himself seems to appear. <clears throat> but a Christophany is, is the visible, tangible, and temporary appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, appearing either in angelic or in human form, but a definite physical appearance. Uh, for example, one Christophany that we looked at last week, we're not going to turn there and read it again, but just in case you weren't here, I'll give you a reference so you can go back and see what we're talking about. Uh, Genesis 18, verses 1 through 33, the Lord appeared to Abram in human form in Genesis 18. So last week, we looked at Examples of where Jesus was actually present in the Old Testament. Tonight, we're going to focus on accurate predictions about Jesus that are found throughout the Old Testament. Of course, I've said every week that our goal in this study is, the theme kind of of the, of the study is that the entire Bible really is about Jesus Christ. I want to underline that every week. I want to help you discover that for yourself every week, that the entire Bible, the theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. This week I was doing some reading and I found something that Dr. John R. Broadus said. Dr. Broadus was a Baptist pastor in the 1800s, the late 1800s. He was also president of a Southern Seminary for a while. And he wrote these words. He said, and I quote, Jesus is the center of Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament point, points forward to Him, and everything in the New Testament proceeds forth from Him. And then the great theologian Augustine, I was reading this week, uh, he's of course from the 300s, 400s AD, uh, he said this, and somebody, somebody mentioned this to me a week or two ago, and I don't remember who it was, but somebody mentioned this to me a week or two ago. Augustine said, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed and in the new, the old is revealed. That's good. That's those kind of things like, man, I wish I could have said st stuff like that, you know. Let me give it to you one more time in case you're taking notes. In the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. In other words, without the old, we'd, we couldn't really understand the new fully. And without the new, we would have an incomplete understanding of the old. So, with that in mind... Tonight, I want to talk about how the Old Testament anticipates the work of Christ. Last week, we talked about the actual appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Tonight, we're going to talk about or look at how the, how the Old Testament anticipates the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you three or four, depending on how time goes tonight, three or four examples of how the Old Testament anticipates the work of Christ. The first one would be the most obvious that you would perhaps guess, and that is prophecies. If you're taking notes, write down. That's one example of how the Old Testament anticipates the coming and the work of Christ, that is through prophecies. By some counts, there are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament 
that point to Jesus Christ and were fulfilled by him while on earth. These include prophecies, of course, about his unique birth. For example, in Isaiah 7.14, or his earthly ministry in Isaiah 61.1, or the, even the unique way he would die, Isaiah 53. I want to show you one example of how these Old Testament prophecies anticipate the saving work of Christ. And this is a fascinating example, I think. It's in the book of Psalms. I want you to find Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is a psalm of David. Psalm 22, a psalm written by David. And before I read the text, let me try to explain to you how this the psalm is both a psalm of David but also a messianic psalm. This psalm refers initially to David's own experience. That is, David was writing about something he was going through. David was writing about his own experience. This psalm is basically the anguished prayer of David where he expresses his trust in God in spite of the fact that God has apparently rejected him and men have definitely rejected him. So David is going through this time where he feels rejected by God. He definitely is rejected by men. And he writes this lament. He writes this song of anguish in Psalm 22. So it has a a historical basis. David's words, though, not only are illustrative of what he was going through, but David's words also are illustrative and predictive of the Messiah. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of what David wrote, the ultimate fulfillment of David's words is found in Jesus Christ. Now, with that as a background, let me just read you some verses and see if any of these verses sound familiar from a New Testament perspective. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, if you know your New Testament at all, that ought to sound familiar. We'll read that in a a moment from the New Testament perspective. But again, David's writing from his own experience. He's writing about his own problems, but yet his words ultimately are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. That may sound familiar to you. Or verses 11 through 18. Not every verse, but to give you the whole context, we're reading verses 11 through 18. See if some of these things sound familiar. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let's look at the text. Go to the New Testament. Uh, I'm going to show you two places. One, one in Matthew and one in John. So go Matthew, uh, first to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 35. It says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lot. That's what David wrote about as well. Verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Look at that. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. David wrote about that. Look at verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Those are the words of David. And yet they're the words of men standing at the cross. Verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the first words of Psalm 22. Let me show you another example if you go over to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 19. Gospel of John chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. And and we'll read verse 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Now watch the next verse, or next part of the verse. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said... They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's Psalm 22, 18. Psalm 22, 18. And and John says the reason they did what they did was because David wrote about that in Scripture in Psalm 22, 18. And now the Lord Jesus fulfilled what David wrote about. Wrote about. You see, the writers of the New Testament saw in the passion of Jesus the fulfillment of the cry of the righteous sufferer in Psalm 22. The cry of the righteous sufferer was the cry of David regarding his situation, yes. But the cry of the righteous sufferer was actually or ultimately fulfilled in the passion or the death of Jesus. And that's why... If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. No psalm is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than Psalm 22. It's quoted more than any other psalm. Because as the writers of the New Testament look back to the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 22, they saw the fulfillment in Jesus. Now let me give you one more example of Old and New Testament coming together. Going back to Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 22, I want you to look at verse 22. That's an easy one to remember. Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, verse 22 says, I will declare your name to my brothers. 
in the congregation, I will praise you. Now, let's read it one more time, so make sure you remember it. I will declare your name to my brothers, and in the congregation, I will praise you. Now, if you go to the, uh, to the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, go to chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. The writer of Hebrews is saying that actually that was Jesus speaking in Psalm 22, that, that that was the message on the lips of Jesus. So that's one way that we see the evidences of anticipation, if you will, of Christ throughout the Old Testament. The prophecies, more than 300 prophecies like that in the Old Testament, fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. Now let me give you a second one. And this one is, is a little bit harder. And I'm going to just give you a summary. And we could do an entire study of just this next one. Alright? So I'm, I'm just confessing to you. We're only scratching the surface on this one. This next one. Uh, because uh, we don't have the time to dig into it. But at least I want to give you kind of a broad understanding of this next way that the Old Testament anticipates the coming and the work of Christ. So the first one is what? Prophecies. The second one is types, T-Y-P-E-S, types, or you put in parentheses typology. It's often referred to as typology. Typology is a special kind of symbolism. A symbol is something that represents something else, right? The symbol is not the real thing. The symbol represents something else. So when we, just, when we talk about a type, we're talking about a symbol that represents something else. And by very nature, a type is always prophetic uh, in nature because the symbol is representing something yet to happen, something yet to come. It's a prophetic symbol because they represent something yet in the future. More specifically, I would say it this way, a type in Scripture is a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. Let me say that one more time because this will get a little bit confusing to you in just a moment, I'm afraid. But a type in Scripture, we talk about a type in Scripture, that is a, a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. So if you're taking notes, write this down. When we say that someone is a type of Christ... We simply mean, we don't mean that they are Christ, we simply are saying that they are a symbol, if you will, of what Christ would be or what Christ would do when he comes. That a person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that corresponds to the character of Jesus in the New Testament. When we say that, a, that that's someone, there's, there are also some things that are typical of Christ or a type of Christ. We're saying that that object or that event in the Old Testament can be viewed as representative of the same quality of Jesus in the New Testament. So a type can either be a someone 
or it can be a something, but it always is pointing forward to Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Scripture itself identifies several Old Testament events as types of Christ's redemption, including the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and Passover. So I want to walk through those with you and help you understand that these are types or symbols of something yet to come. For example, the Old Testament tabernacle, if you're taking notes, that would be one of the types found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tabernacle is a type representing something about Jesus. Let me show you this in Scripture. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be in Hebrews for a while, so hope you find that and stay there with me. Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. So the writer of Hebrews is talking about the first tabernacle. Then he says, notice what he says in verse 9. This is very interesting. This is an illustration for the present time. This is a symbol for the present time. Indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and bare ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. This is a symbol for the present time, indicating what the new order will be in the future. The Old Testament tabernacle was a type, which, which was a figure for the for what God would do through Jesus Christ. The high priest would enter the holiest place once a year. And that was a, uh, a type, if you will, a, a symbol, a representation of the mediation that Christ would ultimately fulfill as our high priest. So, that's one example of a type, the first tabernacle. Uh, let me get a little bit more specific. Another example of a type is the veil in the tabernacle. Let's look at this. It's also in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this veil as, of the tabernacle as a type of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, and then what's the next few words say? That is his body. The writer of Hebrews was saying, do you understand that that curtain in the tabernacle itself was serving as a type, a symbol as the, of the body of Christ? That just as that curtain was torn, his flesh would be torn. The veil was torn when he was crucified. That's significant, is it not? The veil was not torn randomly. The veil was torn at his crucifixion from the top to the bottom. When he said, it is finished, the Bible says that the veil was torn from the, top, from the top to the bottom as if the very hands of God reached down to tear the veil in the, in the holy place. Because that veil was a type. It was a symbol. 
of what the sacrifice of Christ was accomplishing. His flesh was torn in order to provide entrance into God's presence through His body. His body was represented in that veil. Uh, One other example of, of a type, we're still on that subject, is the whole sacrificial system. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. We don't have time to study this, but at least we can read through it and make comments. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, uh, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, read the next few verses with me carefully. It was necessary then for the copies, notice that word, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with the sin, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This passage teaches us that the Old Testament sacrifices typify, or they are a type, of the sacrifice Jesus would make for us. One one other example of of a type is the Passover. And you're in the New Testament. Go over to the left and find 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For, watch this, this it's highlighted in my Bible. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was a type, a symbol, pointing to our Passover lamb, who would be Jesus Christ. So, before we leave this, this kind of a deep subject of types in the Bible... I want to take just a moment to point out the difference between an illustration and a type. Because if you're not careful, people can really get on a tangent. Oh, that's a type, and that's a type, and everything's a type. You know, you can hear these teachers, they, uh, they'll write a whole book on the types of the Old Testament. And, and there, it's true, there are types in the Old Testament, but we need to make sure we draw the line where God draws the line. We need to make sure we point out what God points out. And there is a difference between an illustration... And a type. 
Here's the difference. A type is always identified as such in the New Testament. In other words, typology is determined by Scripture, not by someone's imagination. And I don't say that in a condemning way, but it's so easy to start reading things into the Old Testament and your own imagination, oh, that must be a type of Christ. So here's what you need to understand. The types are determined by Scripture. Where the Scripture says this is a type or this is an example, then it is a type. But otherwise, it likely is an illustration or an analogy. Uh, Useful, yes. Important, absolutely. To help you understand the Bible, absolutely. But you need to draw the line between a type and an illustration. Uh, One example of that would be uh, Joseph. In the Old Testament, many, uh, you may have heard Bible teachers or preachers talk about Joseph is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament because of, of his upbringing and because of his experience and the slavery and, and, and just the incredible story that he had and God brought him out and God delivered him. and all. People will look at the story of, Je- of Joseph and the story of Jesus and see, man, there really are some amazing similarities there. Joseph must be a type. Of Jesus, they conclude. However, the New Testament never uses Joseph as a model of Christ. Nowhere in the New Testament is Joseph pointed to as a model of Christ. Therefore, Joseph, Joseph's story is properly called an illustration. Because it illustrates, yes, some important principles. But nowhere in the New Testament does it say that he is a type or representative of Christ. So, so that's, that's types. It's a type is a person or a thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows or points to a person or thing in the New Testament. All right? Looking at the clock, I'm going to do one more, and then we're going to call it quits for tonight, and we'll finish next week. So we're talking about, uh, the title is Anticipating the Work of Christ. Anticipating the Work of Christ. We see in the Old Testament uh, prophecies anticipating the work of Christ. We see in the Old Testament types anticipating the work of Christ, making the word of Christ known and the work of Christ known. Here's a third one that you may not have thought of very much, but there are certain events in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ. Many Old Testament historical events double as symbols of what God would do in the future through Jesus. I think the the greatest example of this is found in Numbers chapter 21. Would you take God's word and go over, find in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. We're going to take a few moments to read this story, uh, or at least part of it, and then I want you to see the New Testament fulfillment. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. (laughs) You don't ever want to get God mad at you. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. 
The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Now now watch this. This is so interesting that God would say, God didn't just say, Okay, I'll take them away. God didn't say, Okay, well, uh, you get everybody in a prayer meeting and and then I'll eventually answer. That's that's not what God said. The Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So get the idea. By the way, I hate snakes, don't you? Man, I hate snakes. So, God said, you know those snakes that, that are biting you because of the way that you've spoken against me? Here's the way out. Here's the only, watch this, here's the only way out. You don't get to choose the way out. Here's the only way out. Make a snake. Fashion a snake. Put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten by a snake can look at that pole, look at that snake, and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, with that in mind, that historical event... That was an historical event. I want you to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I believe is the text. Yes. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one. I'm starting verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So when you look at some historical events in the Old Testament, yes, it was an historical event, but it also was pointing to something else in the future. That historical event was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Specifically this one, His death on the cross. And our faith, when we look to Christ on the cross, that He died on the cross for our sins, when we place our faith in that, that's when we live. And by the way, that's the only solution for sin, right? Just like there was only one solution for the snake bites. There's only one solution for sin. That is to look to the one who hung on the cross. You see, here's the thing I, I, I want you to understand. And I say it every Sunday night during this study. I know I'm repeating myself. But the theme of the Bible... It's Jesus. He's not just confined to the New Testament. The theme of the Bible is what God did for you to make salvation possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's amazing. 
when you understand that the story throughout the Old Testament is not just the story of God's people and God's nation. It is that story, yes. God creating a people, God creating a nation, and all of those kind of things. It is that, sure. But it's ultimately the fulfillment of God's plan to bring salvation to anyone who wants it. And all God's people said, Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. That your word is timeless and it is timely. That the word spoken in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. So that we in our present day can learn and live. God, thank you for Jesus most of all. And as we read our Bibles this week, help us to realize The whole point of that word is to bring us into relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And may his name be honored and glorified, we pray. Amen.